This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. Today, we stay in West Africa in the Empire of Ghana, which the Mande-speaking people called Wagadu. It's time to uncover this area and its people and bring it out of the shadows of medieval European and Islamic history. Today's episode, episode 63, is entitled Wagadu Uncovered. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. According to Patricia and Frederick McKissick in their book, The Royal Kingdoms of Ghana, Mali, and Songhai, Life in Medieval Africa, Roughly four out of every five West Africans around the year 1000 lived in small agricultural communities, with cities like Jena, Timbuktu, Gao, Walata, and Agadis. Housing upwards of 20,000 residents, we can only guess what possible capital cities of the empire, such as Autogast and the frontrunner theory Kumba Saleh, had. Possibly as high as 50,000, maybe? This should give us an idea as to just how many people populated the desert mining towns and outposts in the Sahara, the grasslands of the Sahel, the southern forests, and the jungles beyond that. Sure, pockets we are currently unaware of occurred, towns of maybe 10,000 or so certainly existed in places we have yet to uncover in, say, the forests and jungles, but that 80% of West Africans within the Ghana Empire, or again, as we learned on the last episode, Wagadu, which is what they call themselves, being rural, that 80% being rural is still a mind-blowingly high number for an overall population. These small farms produced millet, sorghum, cotton, groundnuts, okra, pumpkins, watermelons, cola nuts, and sesame seed, among so many other crops. But by far the staple food for all West Africans was rice. And it's interesting that Each small farm specialized in one major crop, along with two or three minor ones. So this no doubt spurred cooperation and trade between villages and communities of all sizes. These farm communities were also pretty well thought out. The McKissicks write, quote, Anthropologists who have studied the Soninke village life have discovered that 8th century Mande people had advanced farming skills, They probably used dikes and earthen dams for irrigation, and their use of land was so well managed, farmers even grew enough to support the larger cities, end quote. Now, I have more to share with you, but if you haven't realized it yet, I'll just go ahead and say it. What we've been spoon-fed in our history textbooks as children, at least those of us who are mm, mid-30s and older, uh, now as adults, you know, we realize is just complete garbage. Uh, West Africa, the location where the vast majority of slaves were harvested, was not a backwoods dumpster fire outside of the edges of civilization. In fact, it seems like it was quite the opposite. Men and women, to continue here, worked in much the same ways as you would imagine. While men handled most of the planting and maintenance of the farm fields, as well as hunting, Women did the harvesting and food processing tasks along with managing the chickens and preparing their goods for the man to take to market. Now, why would the women step in to do the harvesting in the fall when the men usually tended to the fields the rest of the year? Well, to quote the McKissicks, quote, During the harvest season, 
Men built houses. They made tools or spent a month on border duty in the military, end quote. Yes, that is one service that women were not forced into. Military service, then as it is today, whenever the draft or mandatory service exists, simply proves that even in countries that boast freedom of the individual, well, no man's body or life is his and his alone. I guess that's as simple as you can put it. But other times of the year, men and women very much shared the bulk of what makes a family and a community prosperous. The making of pots, baskets, farming equipment like scythes and hoes, these were all shared in the down times of daily life. In fact, at the end of the day, as it has been throughout all of history at the base level of population, the peasantry, to be blunt, of which you and me, most likely everyone we know would have been uh, certainly a part of in any given era in the past, odds are anyway. At the end of the day, men and women played to their strengths. It was likely that men did the bulk of the overly physical labor, short of childbirth, of course, of which I have the utmost respect and admiration for women for handling, because I'll just be blunt and admit that there's no way I am strong enough for that. So, ladies, you're stunningly amazing in that respect, and I mean that. But hunting, building, fighting, these were activities largely handled by the male population, while tasks requiring a highly sophisticated sense of organization and structure were handled by the women. By playing to their strengths, their communities were strong over the course of innumerable generations, and it's been like that throughout the entire world. Acacia wood and clay were the main ingredients for a building in these communities, though it's obvious that when wealth began to play a factor, then stone and other materials were used for larger, more extravagant structures. Leather and vine-tied sandals were almost universal among men and women, and clothing was quite honestly scant beyond tunics and cotton wraps. And if you remember the climate of the area, it seeks to offer a much more accurate and mature, let's be honest, reason for women exposing themselves so casually. I've always found it sadly hilarious how the Western world has chosen this as one of the main symbols of West Africa being so quote-unquote primitive. To me, it just makes sense, and... I think it says more of the Western mindset than the West African one, but I digress. The McKissicks touch on something I find very important, and that's the idea of family in the Mande-speaking world. Now, this is hardly unique to West Africa, but many of their proverbs and adages refer to their ideas of family, such as the, the adage of kings may come and go, but the family endures are, is just one among hundreds of others. A handful of families made up one of these small farming communities, by the way. They would marry between nearby villages so as to spread out the gene pool and dilute it to safe levels, like pretty much the rest of the world, barring the royal families of ancient Egypt and, yes, I'm looking at you, England and France. That's just nasty. I digress again, sorry. But these farms, though on the surface seemed rather poor and overworked, it was quite the contrary. Successful and fairly successful farming families held quite a place of respect within the local group of villages and towns, and were even accepted into higher levels of society from time to time. Another unique place in society was that of the blacksmith and metalworker. The McKissicks write, quote, Blacksmiths were highly revered and sometimes feared in Ghana because they were believed to be powerful uh, magicians, end quote. And dang it if I can't explain it better than them. So here they go again. So, quote, It is easy to understand why. Blacksmiths took ore, which came from the earth, 
and through fire, an element associated with magic, shaped it into powerful tools people could use. The West African blacksmiths had a closed and secret society through which their skills were passed from one generation to another, end quote. So the McKissicks go on to describe that smiths in general were both revered and feared, from blacksmiths being magicians to blast furnace smiths who could handle fire and intense heat with ease, along with the jewelers who shaped and refined rocks, essentially, into these gorgeous stones, illuminating influence and power of its wearer. Smiths were a caste unto themselves in society. Each group, the McKissicks say, had rites and rituals that prepared an apprentice smith for initiation into the body of masters. So mysticism, as you can tell, was a large part of this area of the marketplace, that is the smith area. Their terms for smiths translates to the first sons of the earth, and the word for forge was the same as the word from their mythology about the beginning of existence itself. The, the word forge was the same word of the cosmic egg that cracked and hatched due to intense heat and spilled from it all of life. Their sacred elements all flowed from this cosmic egg and were also present in the smith's forge. Earth, on which the creator stands and into which the tool is used for the betterment of the community. Fire, which is the vehicle of change and metamorphosis. Air, which teases the fire to grow. And water, which controls the fire. If you ask me, it's absolutely a fascinating concept. Not unheard of, but still, to see it played out in yet another part of the world and given to a specific set of talents in society that wrote you know, the skeleton of that part of the culture. It's, you know, just very neat to see it teased out is all I'm saying. Now, speaking of cosmology and mysticism, this brings us to the topic of pre-Islamic religion in West Africa. While there wasn't anything official throughout the region, things like art, family structure and traditions, agricultural practices, poetry, music, trade, language, these were all fairly universal, though regional differences were understandably present, much like we see in the United States or probably in the country you're listening in. But as for religion, there were shared beliefs and there were myths and legends, but that's kind of where it stopped. You know, there was no overarching narrative that tied it all up. But there was a single supreme God, which might have been just the foot in the door that Muslims exploited to spread itself into West Africa. This God ordered it all and made it a place for life to exist. Other deities spawned from this one God and, and they were the you know bureaucracy of gods we see in other pantheons, such as the Greek, Hindu, Norse, Slavic, and Native American pantheons, among others. But it was driven by animism, which is the belief that objects and creatures, even locations sometimes, possess an individual and sometimes conscious spirit. Animism is, to, is believed to be the oldest true religion in the world, and we see its echoes in every single organized religion today. In fact, many people still practice animism. Native Americans do, Aborigines in Australia, the Sami people of West Africa, and the Ainu on the northern islands of Japan. These are all examples of modern-day animists. And though Shintoism still practiced in Japan today, 
uh, and if not fully practiced, it's still seen in many of their traditions, is quite similar in that all non-human things have an internal spirit, and one should treat them with the same respect as one would respect a fellow human. Regardless, these animistic beliefs were at the core of pre-Islamic West Africa. And finally, on the religion side of things, West Africa did practice a form of ancestor worship, though the word worship isn't exactly accurate here. They didn't worship their ancestors necessarily. Rather, as the McKissicks say, they honored them as they attempt to live respectable and honorable lives. And I mean, we all want to live up to our, you know, our family's name and, and you know, to honor our, our relatives. Otherwise, why would we have grave sites? You know, all of that. But that's where it kind of ends in the Western mindset uh, with the mindset of the West Africans. Because, and there's always a catch here, these ancestors could always come back and wreak havoc on the living should they fail to live up to the family name. So, uh, had a bit of a twist there. <laughs> and here we come to our last piece of West African society we'll learn about on this episode. And I saved it for last for a reason. To me, it might be the most important. If you've read Lois Lowry's The Giver, you'll understand. The Griot. The Griot is the most revered community member, minus the king, of course. And in many places around West Africa, the same holds true today. Griots hold a very special place in the minds and hearts of West Africans, as the griot holds the West Africa story in his or her head. The griot is the keeper of the collective memory, and this age-old tradition goes back to time immemorial. Now, if you choose to pursue this subject, you may come across other names for the griot, such as Jali, Jala, or Jali, excuse me, uh, Arokin, Kuvel, Igawin and even the Portuguese variant, Criado. But no matter what it's called, it's still the griot. From Francis Bibe's book, African Music, A People's Art, we learn of the European counterpart, showing us that the identity of the keeper of collective memory was alive and well around the world. Bibe writes, quote, The West African griot is a troubadour, the counterpart of the medieval European minstrel. Like the minstrel, the griot knows everything that's going on. He is a living archive of the people's traditions. The virtuoso talents of the griots command universal admiration. End quote. And it, it wasn't just men, though, who served in this important role either. Though passed down from father to son, generation after generation, if a woman entered the profession, then she too would pass it to, do- to her daughter, on and on in perpetuity. And this makes perfect sense if we look at the etymology of the other Mande word for griot, jali. Jali has a base meaning which translates to blood, leading us to feel strongly again that this practice was hereditary. So anyway, these female griots were called jali muso in many places. And we learn quite a bit if we break down the word into its two distinct parts Jali, again, is another name for griot, and Musso is a Mande word for woman. Now, being the storyteller and keeper of the chronicles of the entire culture is quite the undertaking, and it took years to reach the level of sophistication and the level of trustworthiness among the people needed to become a full-fledged griot. And to be sure, there were a lot of griots around West Africa even a thousand years ago, 
but only the most trusted were welcomed into the court of the local Gana, or warrior king. These most trusted griots were direct counselors to the king, oftentimes the right-hand man or woman of the king. Again, their role in Saninke and other Mande-speaking cultural groups in West Africa, it was, and still is, concrete, and vital, and revered. And these stories were spoken, sung, and danced out. Poetry and prose were a part of their productions as well, and they, mas- and they were master musicians. So, to give us an idea of the kinds of stories these griots and Jalimusa told, I'd like to share one. This is the story of Amadou and Bida. Years after King Diabe inherited the crown, was exiled after a coup led by his brother Kine, and then stormed back and retook his rightful place on the throne of the Sisei people, he died, leaving his kingdom far better than what it was before. But this prosperity was built on blood and murder and human sacrifice. See, back when Diabe was fighting for his throne, he was approached by a mythical beast known only to legend, the great seven-headed snake god, Wagadu Bida. Bida, as he was called simply, offered Diabe a deal. Bida will win his throne back for Diabe, if Diabe did something in return for Bida. Diabe wasted no time and made the deal without knowing what the return was. And as we know, Diabe won the throne back. The other side of the deal, though, was a sacrifice each year to Bida. Forever. But the story continues after Diabe's death. Each year, as promised, Diabe sacrificed a young girl to the snake god Bida, and each year Bida offered the new kingdom of Wagadu peace and prosperity. But when Diabe died, would the new king take on the same contract? And without fail, each new king, though, for decades and into centuries, actually did just that. Until one girl was chosen to be Bida's sacrifice. Her name was Sia. And Sia was betrothed to a great and proven warrior named Amadou, known as Amadou the Silent, for his tight-lipped, almost stoic approach to life and its hardships. Amadou quietly grieved, but after a spell, he broke from his grief and cast it aside. He was going to save Sia, even if it cost the kingdom. Amadou approached the temple where the priests served and worshipped Bida, who advised him that Bida could only be killed by cutting off the snake's heads. The priests were doubtful, but Amadou could not be dissuaded. The things men do for love, right? Bida lived in a sacred grove of trees, deep in the thickest area where it could not be observed, thus remaining a myth of terrifying proportions. Amadou lay in wait. Hours passed, and then days, until finally the priests entered the grove with Sia by their side. Her beauty took him by surprise. Sia was proudly being led, her chin high, her face stolid. She was a figure of such beauty that she seemed as if she could melt at any moment, though simultaneously her face was filled with a defiance that made her look as if she were chiseled from iron. Amadou knew what he was doing was right, because not only did he need a woman like Sia, but the world did as well. 
Sia was tied to a tree by these priests, and she never blinked, nor did a tear slide down her cheek. When Beda approached, it was shocked to find Amadou running from the underbrush and lopping off one of its seven heads. It hissed, and it howled in agony, and before Bida, Bida knew anything else about the situation, another of its heads was cut from its neck. It quickly seized Amadou and squeezed the silent warrior until breath was difficult to come by. It tightened and tightened its grip until Amadou was able to loose one of his arms and slice another head off. From here, the pained cries of Bida began to release a noxious, toxic gas of sorts, and this nauseated and weakened Amadou. But he was burning bright as the sun with his love for Sia, her still tied up nearby. The intense battle went on for days, and then weeks, until the seventh and last head was ripped from the snake god's enormous body. As Amadou lifted the severed head, that last head of Bida spoke. It said, For seven years, seven months, and seven days, Ghana will receive neither rains of water nor rains of gold. Bida then died. Amadou ran to his love and untied her. They embraced and walked out of the grove, not knowing what their love had wrought. Without the protection of Wagadu Bida, Ghana began to crumble. Famine, natural disasters, mining droughts, these all weakened its people and weakened its economy. The veins of the once strong beating heart of West Africa, the trade routes, fell into seasons of decline as the gold and the salt and the copper and the iron became scarcer and more difficult to extract. Their leverage in the Saharan marketplace, too, collapsed. And once Ghana was weakened from within, it became vulnerable to the outside. And the outsiders? They came. These outsiders came, and these outsiders conquered the once proud and mighty empire of Ghana. And there, the tale stops. And here's what's interesting. This was an origin story for the empire of Ghana, again, whom they called themselves Wagadu. From these stories, we can extrapolate quite a bit of history, as we can from all stories around the world. We know that kings existed for centuries before Muslims advanced into the Sahel and West Africa. And we know that political intrigue and succession crises are an integral part of each and every kingdom and empire throughout human history. We also know that it's entirely possible that one person can change the course of that nation's history forevermore. These are all entirely possible. Sure, snake gods and battles lasting weeks, these are merely symbolic, but they can indicate a passage of time when the culture was tested. And though the people were fine from day to day, maybe, such as Amadou and Sia, who were reunited and lived there happily ever after, we can assume, well, maybe this passage of time, from a bird's eye view, which is the power of the storyteller, mind you, maybe this passage of time could indicate the influence of outsiders on the internal structures of the empire, thus eroding its long-term prosperity that it once enjoyed. In short, Ghana began a slow collapse from within economically as well as through agricultural difficulties, Again, the droughts and the famines, etc., which occur in natural cycles. 
which then affected its source of wealth and influence, that is, its mines full of iron, copper, gold, and salt, ultimately leading to a slow internal death. Once weakened, it could do no more than to compromise with outsiders who might help. These outsiders, though, were, particularly these, were a part of a spectacularly swift and violent and religiously fueled movement that was sweeping Africa at the time. And Ghana was simply weakened at exactly the wrong time to be weakened. Either way, if we take the poem called The Song of the Turtle from the end of the last episode and compare it to the famous griot tale here, we can see that the influx of outsiders, Muslim or not, was unwelcome by most West Africans. They had enjoyed their independence from the drama unfolding north of the Sahara, whether they were aware of it all or not. And with Islam creeping in through the holes in Ghana's cracking facade, the griots were quick to pick up on the patterns of collapse that were imminent. And I can't help but think about the role of the griot, even today. Our storytellers, they take the shape of more than just one role around here such as the griot or the minstrel or the bard or the scald. Today, our storytellers are everywhere. Historians, stand-up comedians, filmmakers, fiction and non-fiction authors alike. Their parents and their websites that track a person's ancestry or genetic lineage. And they are us, <laughs> I say jokingly, lowly podcasters too. I've said this on the podcast before and I'll say it again here. We are who we are because they were who they were. But if we don't remember our past and continuously share that past, the goods and the bads, then we will never see the patterns. Ancient, ancients used to believe that the stars showed them things to come. And I used to dismiss that as just crazy. But after decades of reading and learning and enjoying history, I've come to realize the wisdom in such a notion. They saw the patterns of things that they cannot change. They looked up, and they saw points of light in the vast darkness above them, and they made out patterns in the chaos. The griots who wrote the story of Amadou the Silent saw the chaos of history, and they recognized patterns in the chaos, and these patterns led them to the chaos of societal collapse and reconstruction by outside forces. And there's nothing more terrifying for a community than being remade by outside forces. Self-determination, whether you're referring to the American Revolution or the Griot's tale of Amadou and the collapse of Ghana, self-determination is what all communities strive for. They, it's what all communities wish to practice. The Griots of Old West Africa saw the constellations in the chaos of their history. And in studying them and West Africa, I'm led to my final thoughts of this episode. Are the griots of today in our own respective nations listening to this? Are they seeing the constellations within these chaotic times? And seems how you and I and anyone else listening to, the, to history podcasts or teaching history courses or raising our children with stories of the past or, or even buying or borrowing history books to devour, are we willing to stand apart from the crowd and become the griots that every community needs? One thing you'll know about me if you knew me better is that I never intend to lecture or speak down to anyone. I make a conscious effort to stay humble and admit that I'm still learning, always learning, though I also admit that I unknowingly, and I don't mean to, but I come across as a know-it-all too sometimes, 
So I try my best to monitor that, but aren't these questions and these, these thoughts are what learning history is all about? I want to hear your thoughts too. On social media, through Facebook Messenger, Twitter, email, Patreon, whatever, history can certainly be enjoyed by simply reading and listening to it. But the conversation and the open exchange of differing ideas and interpretations is what brings history alive. So if you agree, please feel free to do just that. Catch us on the next episode when we continue our tale of how history continues to intertwine itself. We will move northward into the Maghreb and beyond, but we're hardly finished with our exploration of West Africa, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time. <laughs>